What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DeSabato, and today we have two stories for you. Just before the decade anniversary of the Fukushima disaster, Japan Energy Minister announces that nuclear energy will be put back onto the energy mix for Japan. And then we discuss why Facebook keeps getting angry at Apple. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. The debate around nuclear power is complex, nuanced, and ever-changing. But if I can take a multi-layered discussion and boil it down to two issues that most often come up when discussing whether nuclear energy should be promoted as a form of low-carbon energy into the future or not, really falls into three main camps. One camp says that we need to do everything in our arsenal to combat climate change. We need to do it immediately, so that means using nuclear energy. The other camp says that, well, that could be true, but the problem is we cannot make enough new nuclear power plants in the next 10 to 15 years to actually combat climate change, so we should rely on other forms of renewables that are less dangerous. Then the third camp is everyone in between because they think both camps are kind of right and it's a complex issue, and so they don't really know where to rest their heads. But those camps are really kind of discussing the future role of nuclear energy in our society's plan to decarbonize. But there are already a lot of countries that have nuclear power plants that are already built, that are running, and there's a debate swirling around whether they should be decommissioned or kept online for as long as it is safe to operate them. Recently, one country that has seen the downside of nuclear energy is arguing for its rehabilitation. After a winter of power shortages and nearly a decade since the Fukushima nuclear disaster, Japan's energy minister Hiroshi Kajiyama said in a recent press conference that nuclear is indispensable and is needed if Japan is going to hit its net zero goal by 2050. That is because after Fukushima, Japan shut down all of its nuclear reactors, basically, and got around 88% of its energy supply from fossil fuels. So if they're going to meet their goals, they either need to rush to install more renewables or get their existing nuclear plants back online. It's actually a quandary that's facing a lot of countries and a lot of companies and a lot of investors. And the question in general is what is to be done with nuclear power? So we're going to try to answer that today. First, let's discuss what is happening in Japan and why the Energy Department made such a dramatic shift in policy. And to do that, I wanted to speak to my colleague, Kenji Watanabe, who is from and lives in Japan and covers the energy sector for us. But due to time zone constraints, I couldn't record Kenji for today's episode. So I decided to pull kind of a ghost in the shell stunt and call up Chris Coates, another one of my colleagues, who both covers the energy sector and has a background in nuclear policy to ask him about what is happening in Japan. And he noted that the Japanese government has always been trying to find a way to get nuclear back online and got an excuse this winter after a massive cold spell shocked the Japanese energy markets. So, yeah, Japan had an energy crisis uh, December going into January of, of, you know, the last couple of months caused by extremely cold weather, right? There was this cold snap, a shortage of liquefied natural gas, uh, which provides a lot of, of Japan's electricity, and some short supply in, in the market elsewhere due in part to the pandemic and, and other reasons. Um, and, and prices skyrocketed from normally maybe 7 or $8 per MMBTU up above 30 And, you know, this caused a, a crisis for, for residents of Japan, 
and for politicians who, you know, were largely held responsible for, for the energy crisis. So those politicians look at the nuclear power plants that are shut down and they see an easy way to remove themselves from the problem of natural gas shipments and have a steady source of energy back online. And it would also be great for Japan's plan to be net zero by 2050. And, and companies in Japan like TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company that is the top electric utility in Japan, that has, by our measure, 15.4% of their total energy capacity tied up in those quieted nuclear power plants and only 0.1% in other renewables, the plans by the Japanese government energy minister might seem welcome. But for TEPCO, for the Japanese government, for everyone that wants nuclear energy back online, there are two big ESG risks that are always discussed. One is the problem of toxic waste disposal and repossessing costs therein. And the other is the social opposition to nuclear energy, the community disruptions that can, can cause delays in projects and increased costs and just problems all around. And this issue of nuclear energy is further complicated for investors because of how the world of sustainable investing views the energy source. For investors that are looking to add more low carbon tech to their portfolios, for example, the introduction of companies with nuclear assets, while literally a low carbon energy source, might not actually achieve their goal. For example, here's what the EU taxonomy, an extremely important and new classification system that participants offering financial products within the EU and the UK and large public interest companies will have to report to, decided to do with the classification of nuclear assets. Uh, they left nuclear out of the initial uh, initial version of the taxonomy. So that's no longer Chris, that's Valina Karazova, our utilities guru. After I talked to Chris, I called her up to ask about nuclear in general and how it's affecting the energy industry worldwide. Because uh, obviously you would appreciate that they recognized the zero carbon benefit of the of the technology but um, we have those do you know significant harm criteria which looks at biodiversity and uh, environmental pollution and they just could not get sufficient evidence that proves that nuclear in the long term is um, uh, would meet that do no significant harm criteria. It's kind of the same thing with us for MSCI ESG research. When we look at this stuff, when we look at environmental risk for nuclear, we have to balance the fact that it's obviously a low carbon energy source, so there's benefits there, but there's also a high risk posed by nuclear toxic emissions and waste. So they clash between each other. And what does that mean for countries that have these net zero commitments that is similar to what Japan made in October of last year to be net zero by 2050. And I ask that because Japan is not alone in its net zero commitments. In fact, there are a number of countries that have even legislated their net zero commitments and put them into law. That is China, South Korea, Sweden, the UK, France, Denmark, New Zealand, and Hungary. And many, many other countries have net zero or low carbon goals in place. We talked about the US low carbon priorities under the Biden administration, and we have a lot of nuclear energy as well. So shouldn't nuclear be the push that those countries do to get into the green? China thinks so. In 10 years, it's grown its nuclear capacity from 74,000 gigawatt hours to around 300,000 gigawatt hours in 2019, whereas the EU has taken kind of the opposite. They've seen a slight dip in nuclear power generation beginning in 2004. They still have much higher nuclear power generation than China, but China is seeing this kind of exponential growth. Yeah, I guess it really depends where countries came from uh, and also what they're, uh, where they were in their, in their 
uh, zero carbon transition at the time uh, as well. So uh, a few countries like Germany and Belgium decided that they will just exit nuclear. Um, and obviously Germany is one of the countries with uh, one of the biggest shares of, uh, of wind and solar at the moment. So they were in a place where they were confident that they can achieve zero carbon uh, probably without, without nuclear going forward. There are the, the other countries which, uh, which have had uh, or, or have uh, existing nuclear assets like Czech Republic in UK, for example, which actually think nuclear is quite important to their decomp- decarbonization and they want to keep it. And in both countries, actually, there are new uh, new projects. Uh, in the UK, an existing one and Czech Republic has been working on uh, developing new nuclear projects um, in in the future. And we have France, for example, where, yes, they took, uh, they took the stand that they'll probably want to decrease the share of nuclear. But looking from their perspective, they are very dependent on a single fuel. So 70, 80 percent of their uh, electricity at the moment is generated by nuclear. So uh, they're really the concern is just to reduce a dependency on a single type of technology or fuel rather than um, any safety or, or wider uh, environmental concern. And just to Put things a bit more in perspective globally, um, obviously it is a technology that delivers really large scale electricity generation at zero carbon, uh, with, with zero carbon. So it is massively important for decarbonization from that perspective. At the moment, it accounts just for about 10% of generation, um, but in fact, with uh, decarbonization looming and the expected electrification, which will overall result in higher electricity, um, electricity consumption and need. Um, quite a few models out there uh, have actually um, included that if we are to meet two degree or one and a half degree, the share um, of nuclear would probably need to, uh, to grow. Um, and some of the estimates include even doubling nuclear capacity in the next 30 years. Okay, you remember in the beginning I said that there was this group of experts that said, okay, nuclear energy would be great as something we could push, but there's no way we can actually build what we need to build in the next 10 to 15 years to lower our collective carbon footprint and get to those net zero levels. And what they point to is the delays in production, the schedule issues, the fact that everything always runs over price and that everyone's talking about creating cheap forms of energy, not more expensive forms of energy. They point to things like this plant that's being built in the U.S. state of Georgia called the plant Vagto. I probably pronounced that wrong, but it's a huge nuclear plant and it's years behind schedule as of today. So they say that this is troubling. If we need to immediately lower our carbon footprint, if we need to do it on budgets that are going to be constrained by the COVID-19 pandemic, then we need to look at other types of technology. So I pose some of those questions to Valina. Yeah, all of those complications with nuclear are absolutely valid. And um, we, cannot, we cannot still completely ignore the fact that, um, yes, we didn't even have uh, other zero carbon technologies 20 years ago. So um, wind technology and, and solar has only taken off quite, quite recently. So um, we have a lot, of, uh, a lot of research in the nuclear space. So um, if we find a way to actually deal in a very safely manner with the spent nuclear fuel, 
which will not just postpone the problem to future generations uh, through through long-term storage. Or uh, if we find a way to actually use that fuel, uh, we also have the smaller modular reactors, uh, which are probably um, nearing uh, a more economically uh, viable version and, and, and could be more envi- environmentally friendly. So technology is moving. It hasn't moved until now a lot in the history of using nuclear, but we cannot rule out the fact that maybe at some point in the future we would be able to uh, to use the technology in a much more safer and cleaner way. The question, however, is even if the tech gets up to speed, will another possible accident create a social risk that many companies cannot surmount? That new form of nuclear power plants that Valina was talking about, they want that to be mass-produced. Experts have questioned, well, what if there's a quote-unquote callback for a mass-produced nuclear power plant? What if there's a issue in the design that wasn't seen and then it was kind of put into all these uh, nuclear power plants? Um, So we're far from the days where activists chain themselves to the gates of proposed nuclear sites, but as we see with TEPCO, who is still dealing with controversies like the allegation that its executives ignored the possible risks that a tidal wave could pose to their Fukushima power plant before the disaster, the risk of social backlash, the SNESG, which we've talked about a lot this year, especially for an investment such as this, could be strong and last as long as nuclear waste does. So I have with me today Andrew Young for the portion of our show that's an interview format, who covers the tech sector for us. And Andrew, I want to read you an ad that Facebook took out in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post in December 2020. It's called, it says, Apple versus the free internet. And then they took out another ad that said, quote, we're standing up to Apple for small businesses everywhere. Then Facebook called out Apple on its earnings call last week, saying that uh, it has a lot of competitors who make claims about privacy that are often misleading. And it called Apple one of its competitors early on in the call. Then this week, Facebook announced they would be setting, sending pop-up notifications to Apple users asking for permission to track them for ad-targeting reasons. So why are they acting like this, Andrew? Well, because Apple's new iOS 14 privacy changes will make it more difficult for companies like Facebook to target users with ads. Basically, people will now have to opt in to allowing their data to be tracked on an Apple iPhone by companies that track data. The biggest of those companies obviously being Facebook. But really quick, Facebook isn't the only one that uses this platform to make money. That's why they were talking about other small businesses. So, Andrew, first, for for your quick hot take here, what do you think about the opt-in policies that Apple is using and Facebook's claims that Apple is going to hurt small businesses everywhere? Um, so, opt-in, not opt-out, opt-in um, aligns with privacy best practices. And this is because it puts individuals in the driver's seat with regard to their data. So this aligns with um, our best practice um, to enforce um, an opt-in standard um, with regard to tracking. So on that level, I agree with Apple. Um, You know, the argument by Facebook that it's anti-competitive, I'm not sure I agree with. Um, I don't think it is um, anti-competitive. And the reason is because, uh, like we we just said, platforms have to uh, enforce rules. Um, and this is just another rule. So the, the, the playing field is still level uh, for all competitors, although it will make it more difficult for businesses 
that relied on this particular type of tracking technology, um, it still is a level playing field across the, the App Store. Okay, well, before I ask about the large implications of this on the industry of data collection and targeted advertising, uh, I, I want to just ask you about Facebook again because, it, look, it's the largest player in, in the market. It's like the third biggest company in the MSCI Aqui Index. If Apple asks people to opt into data collection, and a lot of Facebook's revenue is from data collection, does this mean that the company hasn't diversified quickly enough from an industry that, from an ESG point of view, uh, from a privacy point of view, is on kind of shaky ground, was built on shaky ground? I would say, though, it's um, the foundations of Facebook's businesses are um, are not as shaky as a smaller advertiser who would rely um, to a larger degree on this kind of tracking. And that's because Facebook has such a vast trove of data from all kinds of sources um, through their products. So the business of Facebook um, is still pretty robust, even if they lose this um, this uh, this um, source of data. Okay, well, fine. What about the wider industry? Is the wider data collection industry now in trouble? Are the long-term ESG risks that we always talk about with privacy and data collection coming home to roost on companies that built themselves on a shaky data privacy foundation? I know Facebook has a lot of avenues. What about the industry as a whole? So companies that use this kind of technology for their advertising businesses should be aware of the risks uh, involved here. Um, you know, maybe it's not uh, enforced by a, um, a, uh, a gatekeeper, uh, uh, an industry gatekeeper like Apple. Maybe it could be enforced legally. Um, you know, we see the, um, uh, the Digital Services Act uh, in the European Union, which is, um, might also look to address cookies to some degree. Um, so there are those risks, absolutely, um, for uh, these kind of businesses. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Kenji especially, Chris, Valina, and Andrew for talking to me about this week's news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, if that podcast is a phone. And subscribe. That helps as well. Thanks a lot. Have a great rest of the week and talk to you soon. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is 
and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.